2: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I'm conducting an experiment right now. I am lying supine on my reading throne. My head is against the arm of the throne, my back against the cushions, my feet and legs arrayed before me. And it's because it's later in the day that I normally record and I'm a little bit sleepy. But tomorrow I go to Las Vegas and I don't want to take all my stuff with me. So I thought, well, let me record before I go. So that's what I'm doing. But I'm doing it sort of half-assed, which is to say I'm laying down why 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 I do it. And I don't know, maybe it'll maybe it'll impart a whole new energy, a different energy. Uh, maybe a better energy. This is the thing with experiments. You conduct them when you don't know what the outcome is going to be. One of the things that always drove me crazy in science class when I was in high school is that you'd have to do these experiments like in biology and chemistry, but the outcome was already known. So I was always like, well, why don't you just tell me what happens when I combine these chemicals? Why do I have to do it? You already know. So it wasn't an experiment in any true sense of the word. It was replicating an experiment that had been conducted probably millions and millions of times previously. So I had no interest in that. But this... This experiment of laying down on the throne while reading Jude the Obscure out loud and commenting on it as one goes, to my knowledge, has never been done before. This is truly an experiment in the purest sense of the word and Jude is about to conduct his own experiment he has written to Sue Bridehead and he has said to her hey you know uh or she wrote to him and she said you know you can't love me anymore and i was like go you go girl and then she wrote back and she's like yeah on second on second thought i guess you can love me and Jude's like, oh, great. That Then that's what I'll do. I'll just continue to pine after you, even though I know it can never be. He, and like I said last time, he's such a wet noodle. And it drives me crazy because I would be exactly the same. I have been that wet noodle as a young man, countless times, countless times, pining after gals who would have nothing to do with me. And who can blame them? Who wants to love a wet noodle? So he's written to her and he said, Hey, I'm going to come by, uh, some Sunday. And then she didn't respond. And he's like, Oh, I'm freaking out. Cause she didn't write back. And so the last thing was he goes in a feverish state of anxiety about her. He sent off three brief lines saying that he was coming the following day for, he felt sure something had happened. And, and I said, Oh, bullshit. Jude bullshit. Nothing has happened. You know, nothing has happened. You just want to see her because you're freaking out. Yeah, something happened to you, dude. She said, yeah, go ahead and love me. Go ahead and pine after me, you wet noodle. And being the wet noodle that he is, he's like, yeah, that's what I'll do. And then she didn't write back and he's like, oh, oh heavens, I have to go see what's up. So now we're continuing the book. His first and natural thought had been that she was ill from her immersion, meaning like when when she crossed the river and got the chills in his house and they had that long night talking and all that. And, but it soon occurred to him that somebody would have written for her in such a case. Conjectures were put in end to by his arrival at the village schoolhouse near Shaston on the bright morning of Sunday between eleven and twelve o'clock when the parish was as vacant as a desert most of the inhabitants having gathered inside the church, whence their voices could occasionally be heard in unison. A little girl opened the door. Miss Brighthead is upstairs, she said, and will you please walk up to her? Is she ill? Asked Jude hastily. Only a little, not very. Oh, so she is ill. So he wasn't crazy after all. But only a little. So maybe she has the sniffles or a little hay fever. Jude entered and ascended. On reaching the landing, a voice told him which way to turn, the voice of Sue calling his name. He passed the doorway and found her lying in a little bed in a room a dozen feet square. So looks like I'm not the only one lying down on the job. Now Sue's in bed and she's in this tiny little room, a dozen feet square. How could that even be? How could it be a dozen feet? It would have to be four by three or six by two or 12 by one. There's no such thing as a room that you could be lying down in that is a dozen feet square. How could that be? Is there such a thing as a six by two room? No, you couldn't put a bed in there. Anyway, you know, that's a false note, Tom Hardy. That's a false note that you've painted, and I don't appreciate it. Oh, Sue, he cried, sitting down beside her and taking her hand. How is this? You couldn't write? No, it wasn't that, she answered. I did catch a bad cold, but I could have written, only I wouldn't. Why not frightening me like this? Yes, that was what I was afraid of. (laughs) And then she says, but I had decided not to write you anymore. They won't have me back at this school. That's why I couldn't write. Not the fact, but the reason. Well, they not only won't have me, but they gave me a parting piece of advice. What? She did not answer directly. I vowed I never would tell you, Jude. It is so vulgar and distressing. Is it about us? Yes. But do tell me. <laughs> And then she goes, she is the worst. In some ways, she's worse than Arabella because she goes, well, somebody has sent them baseless reports about us and they say you and I ought to marry as soon as possible for the sake of my reputation there. Now I have told you and I wish I hadn't. So... Essentially, somebody saying they were fucking and it embarrassed and shamed and humiliated her. And so she and so they said that they should get married. But here's why she's worse than Arabella. It's the same thing. She's playing these mind games with him. I vowed I would never tell you, Jude. It's so vulgar and distressing. Oh, okay. Well, what is it? And then she goes, all right, I'll tell you. She's the worst. She had she had every intention of telling him. She had every intention of not writing him back, knowing that he would show up at her door mewling like a little kitten. And uh, she's like, yeah, I was afraid you would think I was sick or something. And so she's laying in bed pretending to be sick. She's not sick. Okay. She got the sniffles. She's fine. I'm just repeating myself endlessly here. And so is Jude, by the way. He's just going through this cycle of of going through the spanking machine, you know, he goes through the spanking machine. He's like, I'm never going through the spanking machine again. And then he sees the spanking machine. He's like, I guess I go through the spanking machine. That's what he's doing. He's just subjecting himself to spanking after spanking after spanking. Now you could say, well, that's what a masochist does. And I guess you would be right. He's just looking to get spanked. Now, have I ever been to a sadomasochism club? Yes, I have, just once. It was with, I I, I think this person has talked about it, but just in case they haven't. It was with somebody who was fairly well-known at the time and actually is kind of well-known now, but for an entirely different reason. It was a lady and we were not dating, uh, but we were pals. And so she said we should go to uh, this S&M club. And I was like, yeah, I'm young and hip. And we went to the S&M club. And so we showed up and she she was famous at the time not like super famous but a little bit famous and it would not have been weird for people to recognize her and in fact the person at the SNM club did kind of, did recognize her but she gave a fake name and pretended that she wasn't who she was but she obviously was and then we walked into this SNM club and they were like there was a dude i feel like who was just like in like a leather uh, I mean, everybody was in leather. I wasn't, but uh, the people, the like regular attendees, all seemed to be in like leather harnesses and chain leather chains. I guess, sure, why not? Leather swings and getting spanked, going through spanking machines. If there if there had been such a thing as like an actual like steampunk spanking machine where paddles could be on like a like a steamboat wheel and just kind of spanking you, that's what would have been going on here. And then and then you know there was just like dudes like staring at you and jerking off. And, and it, it, it was not, um, it wasn't fun, but it wasn't not fun either. There was a kind of spectacle to it that I enjoyed. I don't think I stayed very long, maybe half an hour, um, maybe eight hours. I don't know. No, I, I really wasn't there very long. Uh, that kind of thing makes me profoundly unco- uncomfortable. Like for me, like going to a strip club, also profoundly uncomfortable. So you're never going to, I'm never going to be in a position where I see the spanking machine and I'm like, oh no, don't put me through the spanking machine, secretly hoping I get put through the spanking machine. But that's what Jude's doing. Jude is just a spanking machine habitué. I don't know how you pronounce that word, but he likes to get spanked. And it's, it's, uh, it's an emotional spanking that he's craving. And he just gets it from Sue. So, and she's more than happy to put on her leather gloves and spank the shit out of him. So that's what's happening. There, now I've told you and I wish I hadn't. Oh, poor Sue. Poor Sue, my ass. I don't think if you like that means... It did just occur to me to regard you in the way they think I do, but I hadn't begun to. Wait, what? She, She's driving me crazy. But, uh, but I do think we're onto something with this spanking theory. Now, I don't know if this is what Thomas Hardy had in mind with Sue and Jude's dynamic. And as I said, I'm no expert. But my friend, Kevin Allison much more of an expert in this stuff he is the host of the risk podcast he is my former castmate on the state and if you recall he provided us with a very lovely interpretation of arabella a few episodes back so i called him up and asked him what is the perverse pleasure we have with getting the shit kicked out of us
0: Well, I mean, there's, there's a spectrum of different ways that people relate to this kinky kind of stuff. You know, some people are more into that emotional sort. Like, for example, if someone calls me a faggot or tries to humiliate me, you know, like treats me like lesser than in the way that they're behaving in a role play, doesn't work for me. I don't like, you know, feeling like I'm being emotionally beat up. Mm -hmm. Um, but Kicking me in the balls, (laughs) (laughs) doing all sorts of crazy stuff with my nipples. I'm at the point now where people are afraid that my nipples are coming off. Uh, (laughs) I think I do have to. That's another to be kinky. you, You do have to occasionally go to the doctor and say, all right. Are my nipples coming off?
2: <laughs> well, what's what's the worst thing that has been applied to your nipples?
0: Well, I have these uh, nipple clamps from Berlin. I can't find them anywhere else in the world. They have these teeth on them, mm-hmm. these metallic teeth on them, and they're super tight. So if, if, if you're not careful, they can break the skin. But I, for some reason, it's the weirdest thing. Pain is... Of course, it's sensations, so it kind of just reminds people, oh, I'm alive, it's it's exciting, stuff is happening. And a lot of people just have this spectrum of like where the the line between pleasure and pain becomes a little blurry sometimes. So so for me, I like Physical pain. And I find it very interesting. Like I, I, I've taken workshops, kink workshops before where, for example, I took a punching class once where the teacher was this incredibly sexy leather daddy and he got me up as the as the demo guy. I was like, oh, OK. And he was just going to punch me in the packs mm-hmm. uh, and he started doing it rhythmically. And it was really the, a lot of impact play in kink is a little bit like rough massage or like getting into a sort of a rhythm that gets you kind of almost meditative. So he starts punching me harder and harder and harder in both of my packs. <laughs> and then he just takes this Fist, now that I've been warmed up a bit and just goes, boom, so that I felt like his hand was going through me. And that is a very profound feeling that you've allowed someone to feel like they, they're, they're going through, especially because, you know, like you, you think, wait, wait, this might this Uh, stop my heart function (laughs) that's why you're taking a class i have a friend he wants me to beat him up like that and i'm like no i am simply not going to do that because your heart or your kidneys or something else you know i i don't trust myself another thing that i like sometimes is hot wax sure Uh, that i that i understand of course no, well, on your ball? Not so much. <laughs> I, had, I had a person blindfold me. Oh, and whenever you add sensory deprivation, that just takes everything up to 11 because you know the pain is coming and you don't know when. So you're kind of constantly terrified as opposed to like being able to prep for it. But yeah, he poured that hot wax on my balls and again, it was like it was going, it was like, it felt like a hot knife going through my balls, not like it was on the
2: surface of the skin. And that was a positive for you, the hot knife going through your balls.
0: I don't know why it is that I like that really stingy sort of sensation, but I do. Now, of course, I scream like a little girl, which is so it's very problematic to play with me. Uh, <laughs> you have to have a gag or bind me to things because I will likely, you know, punch you in the face by accident or <laughs> scream so that your landlord calls the police. Uh huh. So, yeah, it sounds like what's going on in Jude is more of an emotional sort of thing. And that is territory that can be like when people play with. Uh, you know, like role play that gets into really clearly psychological stuff. We've had stories on risk before where that can go really wrong. I mean, obviously, obviously someone can break their arm or whatever, doing all the. Right.
2: Or if somebody is prodding you, like you said, with an electric cattle prod or a police taser, that can also go wrong.
0: Yeah, you could have a heart attack, I suppose. (laughs) In fact. My first day, I went to an all-male king camp for the first time a couple of years ago. And on the first day, someone was being taken away. As I arrived, uh-huh. you know, the
2: EMTs were there to take so some. It's just important man. to acknowledge things can also go wrong on the physical side, maybe <laughs> yeah. even more likely than the emotional side. <laughs> yeah,
0: but yes, you you very much have to Feel it out and negotiate with people about what you're really comfortable with as far as the psychological stuff goes. And sometimes you don't know until you're there in it. Sometimes someone will call you a name or start acting a certain way toward you where you're like, wow this total, this reminds me of my mother or something like that. And that that totally takes your brain a a different place and you're not able to deal with it. So that's why we have all these safe words like yellow for wait, pause, slow down or red for stop this entirely Mm -hmm. because the psychological stuff can be, uh, scarring for people sometimes. We had a a story on risk recently about a woman who came to this sadistic male heterosexual dom and there's no one who is more afraid to share their stories on risk than sadistic heterosexual male doms because they're the people who are likely to like overstep boundaries and you know like walk into me too territory if they're not super, super careful. So this woman came to this Dom and she's like, I really, really want to be beat up. I want to do like rape play. And he was like, well, uh, I need to know why exactly. And she said, well, I'm coming out of an abusive relationship. And he was like, Oh gosh, I don't know. You know, uh, that might be opening way too big a Pandora's box for us, so they kind of negotiated for a while, and finally he was like, "All right, we'll give something a try, but I'm I'm going to go very slowly and have little ways of checking in with you after every little tap or whatever. If you want me to get harder and harder, and it it gets really hard where where he's actually like punching her in the face and everything until finally she is done, completely done. And he rolls off the bed, he's like, jumps away, like, okay, she's very clearly done. She tells him to stop, and of course he does. And afterwards, they're kind of unpacking it all, and he says, whoa, I think that what happened there was that you didn't need to be beat up so much. What you really needed was to be able to say stop and have it happen, and have the stopping happen. And she was like, "God damn, I think you might be right." So that was a kind of a fascinating story about, like, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but a- a- about how there's clearly stuff at play there that you have to be more mindful of when you're getting into oh, I'm gonna treat you a certain way and make you feel a certain way psychologically, you know?
2: Well, that's what Jude needs. Jude just needs to say stop, but he's not, he's not at that point yet. He's just not at the point. He's very much going, go baby, go, just keep going. He's not being obscure about this at all. No, he needs to be a little bit more obscure in my opinion. (laughs) Well, Kevin, uh, as always, I I leave you utterly flummoxed.
0: (laughs) Fantastic! I hope I really added a layer to your. your
2: (laughs) I think you added a couple layers. Thank you. I mean, I'm not sure if I should be thanking you, but uh, but thank you. (laughs) You are
0: so welcome. I love you, Kevin. Love you too. Bye.
2: Bye. Kevin Allison, giving us all uh, a little glimpse. Maybe more of a glimpse than we wanted into the world of SNM, and naturally more of an understanding into Victorian literature. So we will take that understanding and read more of *Jude the Obscure* after the
1: break. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: Welcome back to Obscure, and if you remember where we left off, Sue was explaining to Jude that she had never really thought about Jude in that way before, or uh, perhaps she just started to. I, I don't understand. Who the hell knows? She says, I have recognized that the cousinship was merely nominal, okay, since we met as total strangers, but my marrying you, dear Jude, why, of course, if I had reckoned upon marrying you, I shouldn't have come to you so often, and I never supposed you thought of such a thing as marrying me till the other evening, when I began to fancy you did love me a little." Perhaps I ought not to have been so intimate with you. It is all my fault. Everything is my fault always. This speech seemed a little forced and unreal, and they regarded each other with a mutual distress. "'I was so blind at first. she went on. "'I didn't see what you felt at all. "'Oh, you have been unkind to me, you have, "'to look upon me as a sweetheart without saying a word "'and leaving me to discover it myself. "'Your attitude to me has become known, "'and naturally they think we've been doing wrong. "'I'll never trust you again.' "'Yes, Sue,' he said simply.' because he's a wet noodle. I am to blame more than you think. I was quite aware that you did not suspect till within the last meeting or two what I was feeling about you. I admit that our meeting as strangers prevented a sense of relationship and that it was a sort of subterfuge to avail myself of it. But don't you think I deserve a little consideration for concealing my wrong, very wrong sentiments, since I couldn't help having them? She turned her eyes doubtfully towards him, and then looked away, as if afraid she might forgive him. By every law of nature and sex, a kiss was the only rejoinder that fitted the mood and the moment. What? Under the suasion of which Sue's undemonstrative regard of him might not inconceivably have changed its temperature. Some men would have cast scruples to the winds and ventured it, oblivious both of Sue's declaration of her neutral feelings and of the pair of autographs in the vestry chest of Arabella's parish church, meaning their wedding certificate. Just say it. Jude did not. He had, in fact, come in part to tell his own fatal story. It was upon his lips, yet at the hour of this distress, he could not disclose it. He preferred to dwell upon the recognized barriers between them. Of course, I know you don't care about me in any particular way, he sorrowed. You ought not, and you are right. You belong to Mr. Phillotson. I suppose he has been to see you? Yes, she said shortly, her face changing a little, though I didn't ask him to come. You are glad, of course, that he has been, but I shouldn't care if he didn't come anymore. Okay, I'm just sick of this. I'm so fucking sick of this. They just go around and around and around and around and around. Pa just through the spanking machine, just again and again and again. Quack, 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 quack. It's getting tiresome. And my, my patience for Sue Bridehead, I feel like, is at an end. I really do. I had given her every benefit of the doubt. But she just plays this game. It's the long con with him. Like, she has known exactly what she's been doing from the very beginning. And now she's, she's, just, she's just stringing him along. And then she turns it around on Jude and she says, this is your fault. No, it's not. Yeah, he was a psycho, absolutely, but she doesn't know that. Yeah, he was stalking her. She doesn't know that yet. Maybe she will at some point. But she has, at every opportunity, opened her arms to him, and then when he goes in for a bosomy hug, clasps her arms in the front of her chest and says no. And I don't mean it in the physical sense, but I mean metaphorically. She's been clasping her bosom shut to him under her habiliments, and it has caused me no end of consternation. Now, in the beginning... When, I, when we first started reading about uh, his aunt and Arabella and all the women in his life, all the women, and there've only been a few, but none of them have been sympathetic characters. And I was out there on a limb saying Thomas Hardy does not regard women well. And I said it and I got pushback and people were like, no, Thomas Hardy, you just don't get it. Like, like Tess of the D'Urbervilles and whoever else they mentioned, like he, he loves women. And I'm like, and and so I said, all right. And then Sue comes along, and at first I was like, no, I'm not so sure. Then, then I opened my own bosomy chest to her, increasingly bosomy, by the way, because of all the new uh, holiday cookies I've been eating. And I said, all right, maybe Sue's not so bad. And then I swing back and forth like a pendulum with her, and now I really feel like my patience is at an end because I don't like what she's doing. She's basically you know, she's saying, she's saying, maybe we should get married, but I don't want to marry you. But don't you think maybe we should get married, but I don't want to marry you. I have no feelings for you whatsoever. But I was thinking, I was thinking about having feelings for you, but then they, but then that ended before it even began. Like, what the, what are you doing? And then she's going on about Phillotson. We know you don't like Phillotson, but you, but you string him along the same way you string Jude. It was very perplexing to her lover that she should be piqued at his honest, acquaintance acquiescence in his rival. He went on to something else. This will blow over, dear Sue. He said, the training school authorities are not all over the world. You can get to be a student in some other, no doubt. I'll ask Mr. Phillotson, she said decisively. Sue's kind hostess now returned from church and there was no more intimate conversation. Jude left in the afternoon, hopelessly unhappy, but he had seen her. And sat with her. Such intercourse as that would have to content him for the remainder of his life. So you've said for a hundred pages, Dick. The lesson of renunciation, it was necessary and proper that he as a parish priest should learn. Yeah. That's what everybody who listens to this podcast has been saying. Just gracefully renounce. You'll meet somebody great, man. It's it's just not gonna be Sue. She's impossible. Like, when the Suicide Girls come to town and they tour in their burlesque show, because if you recall, I've equated Sue Bridehead with one of those Suicide Girls from the early 2000s. You go to the burlesque show and you're like, well, this is very exciting and stimulating. And the Suicide Girls all seem very interesting and cool. But the fact of the matter is... You're probably not going to marry a suicide girl. They've got their own issues. And I'm sure some of them are lovely and conducting themselves terrifically. But at the very least, the circumstances under which you are meeting are not ideal. And you are not going to have a life together. You have to renounce the suicide girls, And so that's what we're asking. Just learn that lesson. But the next morning when he awoke, he felt rather vexed with her. Just renounce, and decided that she was rather unreasonable, not to say capricious. Then, in illustration of what he had begun to discern as one of her redeeming characteristics, there came promptly a note which she must have written almost immediately he had gone from her, I don't even care. I honestly don't even care whatever this stupid note says. And no doubt it says, Jude, I was wrong in some capacity and uh, I should have just been clear with my thoughts and how uh, I would like it if you came back. And uh, I'm sorry that I, I didn't say that I could ever love you. Like something like that. Let's see what it says. Here it comes. "'Forgive me for my petulance yesterday. Duh. I was horrid to you. I know it. And I feel perfectly miserable at my horridness. It was so dear of you not to be angry. Jude, please still keep me as your friend and associate with all my faults. I'll try not to be like it again.' I'm coming to Melchester on Saturday to get my things away from the TS, etc. I could walk with you for half an hour if you would like. Your repentant, Sue. Jude forgave her straight away and asked her to call for him at the cathedral works when she came. I'm so annoyed. I mean, I honestly, I feel like throwing the book across the room. I really do. If I wasn't reading this for a podcast right now, the book would be in the fireplace. And because I used to be on television uh, and have a career, I do have a fireplace. I need a break. This is obscure. Hi, Michael Ian Black here, and we just finished chapter five. And now we are going to we're just going to make our way right into chapter six right? Why not? Here we are. Meanwhile, <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh so much, but there's just like, yeah, Jude and everybody's going through this thing and then somewhere else, something else is happening. So let's see what the meanwhile is. Meanwhile, <laughs> a middle-aged man, okay, was dreaming a dream of great beauty concerning the writer of the above letter. He was Richard Phillotson, who had recently removed from the mixed village school at Lumsden near Christminster to undertake a large boys' school in his native town of Shaston, which stood on a hill 60 miles to the southwest as the crow flies. One of my favorite expressions in the English language, by the way, as the crow flies. It just paints such a vivid image, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know that crows fly straight, but let's assume they do. 60 Miles as the Crow Flies. A glance at the place and its accessories was almost enough to reveal that the schoolmaster's plans and dreams so long indulged in had been abandoned for some new dream with which neither the church nor literature had much in common. Essentially an unpractical man, he was now bent on making and saving money for a practical purpose, that of keeping a wife, who— if she chose, might conduct one of the girls' schools adjoining his own, for which purpose he had advised her to go into training since she would not marry him offhand. About the time that Jude was removing from Mary Green to Melchester, Melchester, and entering on adventures at the latter place with Sue, the schoolmaster was settling down in the new schoolhouse at Shaston all the furniture being fixed, the books shelves, and the nails driven, he had begun to sit in his parlor during the dark winter nights and reattempt some of his old studies, one branch of which had included Roman Britannic antiquities. <laughs> <laughs> in unren remunerative labor for a national schoolmaster, meaning, uh, I guess that means you're just never going to get paid for studying Roman Britannic antiquities, but a subject that after his abandonment of the university scheme had interested him as being a comparatively unworked mine, practicable to those who, like himself, had lived in lonely spots where these remains were abundant and were seen to compel inferences in startling context Contrast to accepted views on civilization of that time. Well, 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 well. Richard Philotson digging in his own backyard, coming across Roman, Britannic antiquities, and finding that they compare differently to his own culture. Well, who else has been mining the past, as it were, looking to distant? Uh, civilizations to find some way of being, if not his own betrothed, Sue Bridehead, And this is an interesting moment, chapter six in part the third, where we are now entering the mind and life of a third character, the third point in our love, Triangle Mr. Phillotson And Mr. has now entered the fray in a totally new way. Uh, My son has now opened the door to the Jill Schwartz Memorial, Memorial Library and is looking at me somewhat askance, looking at me with a kind of, I don't know if it's a patronizing look on his face. His middle finger just went up. He's now essentially saying, fuck you, dad. And now what? Oh, it's dinner time. Oh, all right. Well, look, then let's close the episode, guys. It's been it's been there's been a lot of irritation in the episode, uh, but now we're entering Mr. Phillotson's mind. He's uh, looking to the past to study antiquities. We know that Sue Bridehead is studying antiquities of a different sort. We know that Sue Bridehead has purchased a kind of replica antiquity, which her landlady stomped to the ground with the heel of her boot in disgust. And now we're going to get into Phillotson's mind a little bit. Phillotson, who I feel like has been scorned. By Hardy to this point, uh, both literally meaning like we don't really know much about him, but also in Sue and Jude's intercourse, like they, they both kind of danced around the issue that Phillotson is kind of a nerd, and so uh, we're going to get to know the nerd, and we're going to root for him, and that's what I'm looking. I'm just looking to root for somebody. So until next time, I wish all of you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. And be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why Did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black.